SMS SAFM now on 41391 at SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutine on Twitter. I spoke to you a little bit earlier about telemedicine and uh, my guest we is on now on a better line. Unfortunately, that line dropped there before we were able to even start the conversation. Her name is Rose Tieni Peter, who is a health economist at Percept Health. And uh, they've been doing a lot of work uh, around telemedicine and some really interesting findings. Well, let's just uh, welcome Rose back on the line with us. Uh, Rose, good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Pimelo. Thank you for having me. I tried my level best, Rose, to try and explain what telemedicine is, is, and I don't know if I did a good job. So I'm going to ask you, how do you define telemedicine? Um, I'm sure you did a great job, but the definition that I would use is that um, telemedicine is essentially providing healthcare services remotely or over distances using information communication technology. So it's essentially a doctor or healthcare worker providing healthcare to somebody who's in a different location using technology. Does it matter what type of technology this is? Well, I mean, it does, so it doesn't really matter per se, but usually the most um, common uh, examples that you would see are usually virtual uh, consultations or consultations uh, via the telephone uh, or using some sort of virtual um, um, consultation services like Skype or WhatsApp or other specialized services. Sometimes it involves monitoring using wearable devices. So your doctor will be in a different location, but they'll be monitoring your vitals ah. using um, wearable devices. So it's anything that really allows um, information to be communicated between doctors or patients or doctors and doctors um, remotely and using technology. It's, it's not necessarily new in South Africa, but, but the uptake is a bit slow. Rose, just talk to me about why that is. So uh, before COVID-19, the regulation in South Africa was really that um, you could only provide telemedicine between uh, doctors that already had an existing relationship with the patient. Mm. So you couldn't just, you know, uh, go and have a phone consultation with any random doctor who you didn't have a relationship Mm. with. So these sorts of regulations and limits in the regulations kind of stifled some of the developments in the market. Also, there wasn't, I think, as much of a use case to take up these services. So COVID-19 presented a use case because we wanted to protect our healthcare workers mm. and also our vulnerable patients. People were a bit frightened about leaving the house and going to healthcare facilities. So there was more of a use case um, for telemedicine. And also the HPCSA relaxed the guidelines to allow first-time consultations between patients and doctors, also to protect healthcare workers, but all, while maintaining um, contact with the healthcare system for patients as well. So, so you're talking about regulations that have been relaxed. Just, just how relaxed have they been? What, what other extensions have they made? So, so far, the only extensions we're aware of are the, the, um, around the definition of how telemedicine um, can be provided. So this now allows for first-time consultations mm. between um, patients and doctors. So that, at the moment, is the relaxation that we're aware of. I guess the one thing that we would then need to do is, has it been effective? So for us to promote it, for people to, to be eager to use it, there needs to be a measure of sorts to say, well, it actually has worked. Exactly. And this was um, part of why Percept decided to do this research in the first place. We needed to collect the evidence to see whether telemedicine is in fact um, useful to be part of the continuum of care and provide health care remotely and in a more convenient way for both patients and doctors. So the purpose of this research was really to see what does this, uh, the telemedicine landscape currently look like? What are the innovations that have happened? How has uptake, uptake changed? And how can we um, use this to inform um, the regulation going forward? 
Rose, tell me why you don't have a massive adoption, for instance, at a government level, where this, for me, would be really, really effective. So we know that transportation in this country is really tricky. It's expensive. People have to travel long distances and so on. And we also know that a lot of people may not necessarily have a home, but have a, a very basic uh, telephone. And they have what is, you know, also a very cheap mode of communication, like WhatsApps and so on. Why, for instance, aren't big hospitals using this? I, I think you would cut you know the traffic in a major hospital almost by half i think um so i think what we need to understand is that telemedicine actually isn't that new to south africa yes and it's not new to the public sector in particular so there have been interventions like this that have been tried in the public sector but haven't really been as successful as they could be partly because of poor change management um and you know some devices that were procured that weren't quite right for the service and so on but i mean not to only put you know like a blame on anyone for what may have may not go- gone wrong there's also other infrastructural issues that mm-hmm. i mean in some places that would benefit the most from telemedicine access to smartphones or internet or those things that would make it easy for you to have a tele- consultation aren't necessarily that common either i hear you but i also don't hear you <laughs> i hear okay. you rose but i How don't I hear you no 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 because mm-hmm. I, I, I my pushback is that mm-hmm. very widely we also know that south africans are very connected and in mm-hmm. simple technology like whatsapp so that doesn't necessarily need a smartphone that's just my basic mm-hmm. understanding and so where i think we need to be quite honest is that we could do better we we could certainly take a telemedicine and and do better in making sure that people have better access to medicine and 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 you're 100% right about that. And I think um, what the current uh, changes in regulation and COVID-19 has done mm. is really allowed the private sector to, to sort of mm. step up in this space and innovate in ways that could potentially solve some of these problems. Yeah. So this is sort of what we've been observing as well. Yeah. Some of these solutions do exist and they've existed for a long time, mm. but now we have an opportunity to actually take them up. And we've seen so much innovation over the last six months due to COVID in our public health system. And I think... Um, to their credit, they've really managed over this period of time to um, to take on uh, new types of ways of delivering health care to people mm-hmm. that would have normally taken months to sort of, or even years, to sort of develop these new channels of care delivery. Mm-hmm. But they've done it in such a short space of time. So I think there's also a lot of innovation and potential for innovation in the public sector mm-hmm. at the moment, and telemedicine can be a big part of that. And, and then, Rose, from the study that you've conducted, I mean, how, how can we, because I think it's also incumbent on all of us, right, to push society mm-hmm. forward all of us have to buy in, all of us have to do our bit. How can we accelerate the speed of, of adoption to telemedicine? Well, I think the first part of it, and what we've highlighted in our research, is that we do actually need to collect more evidence. Mm. We do need to be aware of what is the size of our telemedicine market, who are all of the players, what are the kind of services that are currently available, and where can they slot into the continuum of care. But it's all of the stakeholders in the market, and as you mentioned, users such as you and me and doctors, but I think especially regulators and um, providers need to come to the table and think about how can we regulate for innovation? Mm. How can we allow this market to grow better? What is required for us to really, um, I think, make well embed telemedicine in part of the continuum of care? I'm going to take a quick break, Rose, and I'm also going to open the lines. Uh, we're speaking telemedicine, and maybe you've had experience of telemedicine. Did it work for you? Was it something that you would continue to use? 011 714 2006 or WhatsApp on 0614 104 107. 
Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. We're talking telemedicine with health economist at Percept Health. It's Rose Tieni Peter, and we're discussing telemedicine in South Africa, its uptake, and why it's become so slow, and what uh, uh, the pandemic that we're currently facing at the moment, COVID 19, its impact on telemedicine. Rose, the funding of telemedicine, you're a health economist. It hasn't been that great in South Africa. Why is that? Um, to be honest, I can't really answer that question because some of, it's trying to get some of this information on how telemedicine is funded in the public sector or even the private sector is quite difficult to mm. do because this research is, I think, largely still quite new and not very well done so far. Um, but so far what we can say is that um, in the private sector, one of the barriers to uptake is the way in which doctors are reimbursed. Mm. So obviously... Um, for you okay. to want to provide a service, you have to have the incentive to do it and yeah. at the right price. Yeah. And often doctors are not reimbursed at their full rate for providing these services. So they're a little bit hesitant to want to provide telemedicine services. Ah. So we need to think about how we reimburse doctors as well in a way that makes them want to provide these services. Ah, ah that brings me to my next question, because um, there must be then something to be said about the technology thereof. Does the technology meet the need? You know what I mean? The type of technology that goes alongside the consultation with the doctor. Do they feel that it's adequate to actually perform their services to their best of their ability? So from some of the data that's been provided um, to us by by some telemedicine providers, Mm. um, uh, responses from uh, patients has shown that a lot of them, the majority of them, often over 80% of them feel that their needs can be met through a telephone consultation. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, for instance, not everybody will necessarily go to the doctor Mm. because they're severely ill or, you know, they've really injured themselves and those things might not be, might not lend themselves to a teleconsultation. But if you need a prescription or you feel like you have flu symptoms or, you know, you just need to know, like, should I see a doctor or should I not see a doctor? You may not need like a full-on consultation for that, but you would, you know, you would normally have to go in office to actually see a a doctor face-to-face for that consultation. So some of these things, um, some of these patient needs can be met through teleconsultations. But of course, it's up to the doctor and the patient to see within the consultation whether a second one is needed. Mm. Okay, let me go to Anonymous there, who is calling us, who is a health professional, apparently, from the Western Cape. Anonymous, good afternoon. Good afternoon to Mele and your guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for calling. Um. Maybe I must say uh, my portfolio at the, uh, at the department, I'm a clinical nurse practitioner. Okay. So clinical nurse practitioner is a nurse who specializes in seeing patients at the clinic. Mm-hmm. So that category of nurses see about 80% of the nurses, I mean of the patients that visit the health facilities at the primary care level. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, your guest today is talking much about the doctors, which I think should have said clinicians, because clinical nurse practitioners and doctors, we call them clinicians, if they specialize in, in seeing patients. Mm-hmm. Now, coming to the topic, it's a good approach that I would think is going to work and it's going to decongest the facilities mm. at the government level. Mm. Um, maybe the challenge will be like maybe you are doing virtual consultation. This patient has to get medication if the patient has to 
or, or get medical intervention because some of the diseases can be attended without medical intervention just like uh, natural uh, home or uh, home remedies but in case where the patient needs medication and with our communities that are poor they would need to get medication from the pharmacy which will be the government pharmacy i think it would work well in conjunction with transportation of which maybe economically it may not be viable like if the patient maybe is at a certain area you consult virtually and you prescribe and then the pharmacy the public sector can uh, can dispense but at the other side uh the, the 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 pharmacy can dispense and then have an outlet for those patients who who are consulted virtually, meaning the patient won't have to get inside the facility. There can just be uh, a a pharmacy outlet for virtually consulted patients. It's just that I I want to to, to put that input and also to say that I think it's going to work because really public sectors are connected. I mean, I mean, public facilities, health facilities, like for now, in terms of COVID, our patients can't wear masks properly. And not all patients need needed to come. Some could be really be having at home if they do have these technology, uh, technological uh, devices. Hmm. That's <laughs> far my input can Thank go. Thanks very wow. much. Thanks very much there, Anonymous. So, so Rose, I mean, I think a lot of the, the issues she's bringing to the fore are things that you touched on a little bit about, um, you know, how effective this can be. And there has been an attempt, but we need to get better at it. What I do want to ask you, Rose, is that with the current regulations, so does a patient or a doctor have to uh, specify whether the consultation was virtual or it was uh, in their rooms when when they actually sent through to the medical insurance companies, they claim. Um, yes, they would have to specify whether it is virtual or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the current, before COVID nineteen, there was actually a code for this, which which doctors could bill at, but they were reimbursed at quite a low rate. Um, because it was considered sort of like this is used for follow-up consultation and that kind uh. of thing. But um, some medical aids have um, upped their, the rate at which they reimburse and they have created a new code. But very few of them outside of psychiatric and psychological uh, consultations with a psychologist reimburse at the full rate. Is it still less than what they would have been reimbursed had it been a, 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 a one-on-one rooms visit? Yes, it's usually from what we've seen somewhere between 60 and 75 percent of their normal rate. So then we need buy in. <laughs> we, need, we need buy in. And I'm curious why then uh, the medical insurances wouldn't see this as as just technology advancing and society advancing and not doing what I would imagine would be the next the, the, the next best thing is to, to reimburse properly because in any way, the patient and the doctor would make the call to see each other if the need arises. It's not like people are going to, you know, to, to not want to get the best health care if, if that's required. Yeah, I think you've touched on something very important there, which is sort of um, what are we reimbursing for when we pay doctors, right? So I think there is one school of thought that really believes that, you know, if the patient's uh, issue is resolved, 
and we're paying for the fact that the doctor has resolved the issue and they should get reimbursed at their full rate. But I think um, some pushback comes from people who feel that, well, you know, if you're not consulting in your rooms and you're not using um, all of the same equipment that you would normally use, perhaps the cost would actually be lower. So um, I think this is sort of the debate that's happening of whether uh, – are we saying that the costs are coming down so we reimburse doctors uh, at a lower rate or are we saying that the doctors are providing the same standard of care so they should be paid at their full rate because they're able to resolve the issue? Yeah, but the cost is not coming down for the patient, is it? No, it's not. Exactly. Well, I mean, we hope that telehealth exactly. can do that, but this is part of how this is part of why we need um, to have this debate to see how these costs can come down and where in a way that incentivizes doctors and patients to um, to prov- to take up and provide telehealth services. Well, well, I think this is an important conversation because, as I said, you know. We always find that the patient is on the back foot. Always the patient is paying more. The patient is not getting as much. And on the other side as well, the doctor would say equally, you know, I'm not reimbursed properly because just think about where medicine is going at the moment. Yes, people may say that the doctor is not sitting on your chest and doing all sorts of things. And I mean, I'm obviously exaggerating here, but mm-hmm. you get the point. Um, yes. But there are Fitbits. You know, there are there are things. There's your, your phone, um, which can tell you how many steps you've, you've taken, which are likely to be more accurate than the kind of information you would offer your healthcare uh, worker if you were to sit and, and answer questions that were asking you. So if they said to me, um, what does your eating habit look like? I may not remember. I may leave out some stuff. Maybe it's because it's embarrassing. But if there is technology that is actually going to accurately document what I am consuming, you may find that that technology is going to be far more beneficial for both the doctor and the patient than the visit that we deem to be traditional visits. I mean, I don't know if I'm making the point. You're definitely making the point, and I think you're making the point that uh, some of the service providers who use wearable technologies have made that um, we're able to collect a lot of this vital data. We're sitting on this data, and we can use it. But uh, this sort of brings up another issue of how we can share this data with one another, who has access to it, and who does it belong to. So can you just sort of share patient data with all of the providers so mm. that you can, you know, analyze their risk accordingly? Mm. Or does the patient belong to, does the data belong to the patient, and they decide who they share it with? Or does it belong to the provider and perhaps they don't want to share this data because mm. it's proprietary information? Mm. So there's a lot of things that sort of um, come in here when we're thinking about technology and medicine because we're not only thinking of the tech aspect, we're also thinking of the ethical and legal mm. aspects of how can we make this work in a way mm. that is more efficient, brings down costs, helps us to analyze risk more accurately. And um, it's a very, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a big discussion that we're, we're trying to have but this report that we've published is the first step in that yeah. direction of trying to figure out um, where are the gaps in knowledge and, you know, point people in the right direction. Rose, how are we going to get the voice of the consumer, of the patient to be more elevated? I've often found that in these conversations, you have pharmaceuticals, you have the healthcare insurance companies, you have, uh, you know, big companies having a conversation uh, alone by themselves. And then somebody saying, here's the data around how patients need to be better uh, treated and so on. But very few times will you find the voices of the patients themselves in these conversations. I think you're 100% right. Often um, the patients are really left out of this conversation. And I think the onus is on, firstly, I think the regulator of getting their, the patient's view 
on how they feel about telemedicine and how it can um, how it can meet their needs, but also providers. I think as you know, as 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 uh, people who are providing a service uh, should reach out to their clients to understand like how can we do this better. And I think a lot of them are doing this in the form of surveys and so on. And we're trying to present some of this information that we have found, and some providers have been so generous to supply us with in our report as well. Mm. Are you finding because I find um, for consumers. There's a different type of response when it comes to health and other things. So, for instance, how you react to your, inf- your health information and access to your health information to, for instance, access to your banking information is slightly different. So I think the ethical question is also slightly different. So um, back in my day, they, we used to wear bracelets. Remember those bracelets that would say to somebody, if I dropped, I have, I don't know, epilepsy or whatever the case may be. In other words, I want my information to be readily available to the first person that encounters me should I have a problem. Right. So access Mm -hmm. to that information is important for me to have it ready for other people, as opposed to I wouldn't have a bracelet with my pin number, my banking pin number, for argument's sake. You get what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is I wonder where those ethical conversations are leading us, because sometimes, yes, information is, is private, but there is information sometimes that I would want people to know that I may not necessarily not want to hold on to because it's it's for my health it's for my benefit yeah and i think this is really a good question for our medical legal experts because these are the questions that they grapple with right once you give consent for your information to be used uh you also have to trust that the person who's using that information is only using it um for what you've consented to Mm. um and i think that is also something that i mean we have very good uh, uh, consumer protection and information um legislation in poppy in south africa it really i think um does sort of delineate this quite well but i think it's also understanding how can we leverage um the existing you know legislative infrastructure that we have along with the technology infrastructure to provide better health services and sort of you know kind of uh, square all of these circles so that in the end the patient is better off Always lovely. Rose, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Happy holidays. I know we've taken you out of your holiday time. Thank you for talking to us, Rose. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. Rose Tierney Peter is the health economist at Percept Health. And they've just come out with this report on telemedicine and how South Africa is doing on telemedicine. We've got a long way to go, but I mean, it's a start nonetheless.